0: Welcome to The Give Back. I'm your host, Lori Kelly, philanthropy leader at Providence. We believe passion is at the heart of giving, and that's why Providence works with donors to fundraise each year to help advance research, health care, and wellness. The Give Back is a show about the ways Providence cares for its communities. But before we start, I want to remind listeners that the information provided during this podcast is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. For today's episode, another of the Give Back hosts, Mary Renoff, Associate Vice President of Social and Influencer Strategy for Providence, will be interviewing Becky Wilkinson, Outreach Program Manager of the Better Outcomes Through Bridges program. They'll be discussing the BOB program, which focuses on serving some of our most vulnerable people in the Portland community. Thank you for your time today, ladies. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Well, let's start with a super easy one. Tell me a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, I'm a social worker. Um, I've worked for Providence for, I guess, about two and a half years. Um, Prior to joining Providence, I've worked with a couple of different health systems. Um, providing on-the-ground uh, outreach services to really vulnerable folks. Um, and so this is pretty much my life's work.
2: Well, if you have to dedicate your life to something, this is a pretty impressive thing to dedicate it to, I have to say.
1: Thanks. <laughs> tell us
2: tell us a little bit about BOB, what it stands for, yep. Uh, yep. what it is, and, and why it was created.
1: Yeah, so the BOB program, Better Outcomes Through Bridges, um, was created about a year before I joined Providence. And it was created by um, our executive, who I know you know, Dr. Robin Henderson, um, and Kristen Powers. And so they actually, interestingly enough, I've worked with them in the past before in a different health system uh, doing similar work. And so when they came to the Portland area, to work for Providence, they knew the success of this particular work and wanted to emulate that in Portland where there's a huge need. And so, really, what the BOB program originally started as it, uh, ER outreach. So, focusing on patients who were coming into the emergency department frequently, who had a lot of social needs, um, behavioral health conditions um, that really just sort of needed that extra one on one you know, face-to-face work in the community. And so now what Bob is, um, I mean, I love your intro. It really does focus on our most vulnerable in many different ways. So we've sort of rapidly grown into uh, working out of five ERs in Oregon. We have a primary care program, a behavioral health clinic program. We are partnering with a school to provide school outreach uh we are working uh, on a housing project in one of our vulnerable communities uh so we have a lot of things going on really that that all sort of have that overarching you know behavioral health work in the community vulnerable folks and it's really just now tailored towards the different community needs that we are in um and so when i say behavioral health i mean that this encompasses us working with folks who have addiction issues, um, social determinants of health, um, you know, chronic pain issues, mental health disorders. So it really encompasses sort of all of those things.
2: Well, and talk to me about, is this, this program sounds pretty unique. I I imagine that there are programs that maybe touch on on some of these facets in, in other systems. And you mentioned, you know, coming from a different system, but what makes this program kind of so unique? Is it, is it all of the components? Is it the location? Is it everything? What is it?
1: Honestly, I mean, just in doing this work for so long, um, and then also having the opportunity to really create this, um, in a community as big as Portland and then also being able to serve some of our more rural communities that that our smaller hospitals are in. Um, You know, as I mentioned, it's really serving the community and looking at the uniqueness of the needs in that community. So for example, uh, we have a county that we're working in uh, that has one of the highest rates of homelessness in Oregon, but that has zero overnight shelters. Uh, at the last uh, point in time count, more than half of the homeless population were kids. And so when we looked at expanding in, into this community, um, you know, we have two of our, our small hospitals in this community, I immediately got connected with uh, with folks that were looking at unique ways to provide safe overnight housing. And so, so that was how we started our work in that community. We we quickly partnered with housing groups. It's actually a group of pastors um, and other constituents in that community that have been trying to introduce these, these programs into that community. You know, when I look at our, uh, our clinic work, um, specifically the clinics that we work in are in another part of Oregon that is also rural. Um, and a lot of what that community experiences is food insecurity and transportation issues. So really being creative in writing grants to to fund some of that stuff. Um, and again, just tailoring the work that we do towards those needs. So, uh, you know, in the ER work, of course, it's and it's all relational. I mean, I, I get asked all the time but why do you think this work is so successful? I mean, what makes this different? What makes it unique? And and to be honest, it's the relationship building. I mean, it's not only just relationship building with our clients, um, because we have the unique opportunity to really bond with folks when they're not in crisis, you know, when they're outside in the, of the hospital, when they're, you know, camping wherever they live, we can take them to a coffee shop, we can actually spend the time and listen to them. And, and and we really take the time beating the street and working with our community partners. I mean, you know, this is this is a lot of work and it can be really complex. And, uh, you know, and, and to be honest, it can be really sad, too. I mean, there's, as we witness right now, I mean, there's a lot going on in the world. and And now our vulnerable folks need us more than ever. But with the strength of working with our community partners, we would never be able to uh get all of the things done that we have with our clients.
2: Well, you know, you've you touched on so much there. I had so many questions. I wanted to <laughs> I know, to sorry. <laughs> well no, it's it's great. I mean you talked you talked a little bit about kind of all these different these different facets. And I think people don't really think about it. When you think about people who are, you know, housing challenged or or you know people who are struggling or maybe living on the streets or living in the cars. You don't think about the fact that 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 situation is impacted by having a safe place to live, but having food in your belly or a job or transportation to that job or even an education in order to get to that point. Mm-hmm. So you have to be working with a lot of different stakeholders or partners or even other community partners in order to make this happen. Talk to me a little bit about um, how, how you provide these services, like how, how are these made available?
1: Um, do you mean just what it sort of looks like when we work with somebody or like funding for the programs? Yeah, I
2: think I want to talk about both of them, but let's start, let's actually start so that we're educating people. Let's talk about the fact of how does somebody get through your, and I'm going to use air quotes, virtual front door, right? How do you get the, the, the the resident, the patient, the person in need to you? And then what does that journey look like? And I'm sure it's different for everybody, Mm -hmm. but you know, as general as you can make it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So again, utilizing our community relationships, uh, we get referrals from everywhere. So even though I say that we are focused in working in the community with our folks, I mean, you know, we are based out of hospitals. So we do have desks in in the ER or close to the ER. We do have a desk in the, um, you know, in the clinic. So we usually get referrals that way from staff. Um, we also get referrals from the community. Uh, we get referrals from, we work really closely with insurance companies. Luckily we're pair blind so we can work with anyone really truly focusing on uh, everybody who needs services. So, you know, we get referral, I mean, I, I get calls at least three times a week from the fire department, from, you know, behavioral health police unit, from, I mean, everywhere you can imagine, you know, social service agencies, not a lot of folks have the unique ability to go into the community like we do. So folks that are really bound by, um, you know, their four walls, wherever that may be, they'll call us, you know, and, and refer somebody that they can only reach out to telephonically.
2: That's amazing. I I love kind of the way you framed that. And and one of the other things you said a couple of times you've touched on is kind of this, your ability to build a relationship with people. And I think that's the other thing people tend to forget is when you're in these situations of, like I said, living, you know, in a tent or on a boat or whatever, oftentimes it's, it's because you don't have family or you don't have anyone to support you or you have a fear of being you know, a burden on your family. But you guys are developing these long-term relationships with people. You're starting to see them over time and really kind of have that affinity. And, and I do think that's one of the things that makes you unique is you actually get to know the people. It's not a one and done. You're not like in the emergency room and then kind of quote unquote, hoping they get better and never come back. Talk to me about why that makes a difference in getting to know somebody and then their kind of long-term success.
1: Well, I mean, as you probably already know, doing this, you know, doing what you do, I'm sure you hear a lot of stories about traumas. And so folks that are living outside or are really vulnerable in many different ways, you know, it takes, it takes a lot to trust others. And so by us having the ability to really like literally and figuratively meet them where they're at. So, uh, we can take, we can be in their environment. We can take the stress away of them, you know, being in the hospital. If people don't want to come into the hospital a hundred times in a year, you know, something else is going on. And so for us to have the ability to just listen and that, I can't even tell you how many times I've heard clients tell me, you are the first person i felt like a, that has really listened to me and and so we have that ability i mean we are not like forced to um you know have time constraints really we can sit down with them for an hour and literally just listen and and usually that's what the first meeting is 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 listening you know
2: so I guess that does kind of beg the question of you said the first meeting. I mean, is there is there kind of a standard like you try to get somebody from start to finish in thirty days or sixty days, or does it really just vary?
1: It varies. Um, so we have a couple of different programs. As I mentioned, I didn't mention our peer support program, which is a little shorter intervention. And that's and when I when I say peer support. I am mean people that have lived experience. So people that we have a whole team of folks that actually were homeless themselves. Wow. Um, and so their work is a little more unique and a little more short term. Uh, when I talk about outreach, um, a, an outreach worker is somebody who I would classify as in between a peer support specialist and a clinician. So their bachelor's level, A lot of the team, interestingly enough, uh, does have their own lived experience, even though they're not technically peer support specialists. So so there's no time limit on the outreach work. I, I do not want folks to feel like they have to force somebody to do anything because this really is truly patient led.
2: It's interesting you talk about kind of both the peers and the the lived experience. Having, you know, spent a great deal of time working on mental health and housing in the last few years with Providence and Wellbeing Trust, I have learned that I would say 80 plus percent of the people who work in that space work in it because they do have lived experience, either their own or somebody in the family. And so I imagine kind of that being able to relate to somebody really matters when you're talking to the people that you're trying to help. Is is that, I mean, do you hear that a lot from them? Yes.
1: Yes. Uh, We started with, uh, I mean, we have a couple of different projects going on with our peer support specialists. And uh, recently uh, we have started working with our regional trespass committee um, as well as our property management folks. So in Portland, if, if folks are camping near some of our properties, we'll send our peer support specialists out there to reach out to them and say, can I, Can I help you along your way? You know, we our program luckily has some partnerships with shelters, so that we have designated shelter beds. Um, And because we're in the community so much, we have those partnerships that we sort of have ins to different types of unique, um, you know, transitional housing or what whatever that may be. But you know, that's going to be received. Somebody walking up to a camp that has already lived in a camp before is going to be better received than me walking up to a camp. Uh, Not to say that, you know, I mean, I feel like I'm a good social worker and I absolutely love this work, Um, but you know, it's different, it's different. Yeah, it is, it is. Well, I know um,
2: you've touched on a little bit of kind of what the program overview is, but how is it kind of, I assume that you guys are always adding services or new partners or, you know, trying to optimize over
1: time. Tell me how Bob's kind of grown. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I I was just talking about this the other day. I literally could have never imagined it would have grown into what it is now. And um, you know, we we actually service uh, all across the state. So we have eight hospitals in Oregon, and in some way, Bob works with seven out of the eight hospitals in Oregon, whether it's peer support, uh, follow-ups uh, via telephone from any of our um, you know behavioral health patients who have discharged from the ERs to like I mentioned, school outreach clinic outreach. Um, So it's grown a lot and it's actually going to grow more. Uh, We recently started working with um, one of our hospitals on a pilot project to provide peer support services for Uh, folks that uh, were getting inducted in the hospital for medication assisted treatment. So folks that have opioid use disorders, um, one of our peers have been working on that project for about six months and they just reported out that they had 446 saved hospital days. That's huge in six months. I know. That is huge. Yeah, so they're looking at expanding that. Um, But yeah, it's, I mean, there's a lot of interest for Bob because folks see all of the success and they know that, you know, again, they're bound by their clinic walls or hospital walls, and there's only so much that can be done in a short amount of time.
2: It's interesting kind of how you've built the program. Do you think Providence looks at this? Because we're we're talking about Portland, but obviously we have a lot of vulnerable populations in in all of the ministries we serve. But when you look at housing specifically, so much so in California and Seattle, do you see this kind of being a blueprint? Like, do you hope that Bob becomes Bob
1: Portland, Bob Seattle, Bob Missoula? <laughs> of course, I'm very biased. I mean, I truly <laughs> 150% believe in this model. I mean, I've seen it work for, you know, the decade that I've done it. Um, yeah, I do. I do. Absolutely. I mean, you know, as we look at the uniqueness of um, all the different things, especially housing and our, our car camping programs and all of that. Absolutely. It can be beneficial anywhere.
2: We were talking about, she was talking about car camping. And I was saying that, you know, those are terminologies I think a lot of people aren't familiar with. And, and in Portland specifically, we see a lot of people in Seattle, I should say Seattle as well. We see a lot of people kind of taking these dilapidated boats and using them as temporary houses until the boat completely falls apart and then finding another. Things that people don't really know if you're not in the community. So Talk to me a little bit about what you see specifically in Portland that maybe people either don't know about or should be looking for as we look for ways that we can help or ways that we can identify those in need.
1: Yeah, I that's a great question. Um, and thank you for asking it, because I, I don't think people really realize um, the magnitude of the issue of houselessness, uh, not only in Portland, but the entire state. Obviously, it's a it's a crisis in our nation. and as i mentioned earlier talking about one of the um smaller communities that we work in um that having one of the highest rates of homelessness i think at the the last time i looked it was the second highest in the state having zero overnight shelters i mean we we cannot rule anything out when it comes to addressing homelessness and when I say that, I mean, you know, providing safe overnight car camping spaces. So, so earlier I mentioned that we started work in this community. Um, I wrote a couple of grants, luckily got them and started working with this local community organizing, um, basically an organization helping communities do organizing in this particular group, which is mostly pastors in the area and constituents had this housing work group. So they wanted to introduce um, safe overnight car camping in church parking lots. and And sort of what came from that as we looked at developing that program is, now at uh, one of our sites, one of our ERs, we actually offer safe overnight parking. So I'm calling it the POP program, the patient overnight parking program. And so what we've done there is we have, um, it just sort of came by accident where one of the outreach workers asked if we could have her client who was living in his car, sleep in the parking lot, Spoke with the you know the site executive, and they agreed, and so here we are with a program. And so, so what it is 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 they have to be vetted, of course. Um, they have to be a Bob client because we're not just going to plot people in the parking lot. We want to be able to offer them services. But I mean, up to date, I you know we've had the program not that long. Gosh, I want to say maybe six, seven months. Um, we've had four people so far and all four have been housed and and maybe that's not a huge number and that's not going to solve homelessness but that's four more people off the street into permanent safe housing and it's four more people that are taking now able to take care of their health because all of them were sick and in fact one of them uh, was a, a couple and uh, one of the couple actually had an emergency in the middle of the night probably would not have made it if they weren't so close to the ER. Um, so my hope is that we can look at other Providence sites and introduce the same thing. Because why not? We have a million empty parking lots that aren't being used at night. And we've got how many tens of thousands of homeless people, you know? Um okay. Well,
2: and and most of those parking lots are usually secured or, or, or monitored. And I think you bring up a really valid point, which is four people are four people. They're four human beings and they're probably human beings with families and impacted. And I think when people look at problems like housing or substance abuse or mental health, it's so overwhelming because it's how do we fix this problem, right? And People look at these grandiose ideas of let's big you know build these big buildings well okay so you build a building and you spend 20 million dollars and it's what gonna house 20 people right Mm -hmm. but when you talk about something like this where you do then have enough access to care and 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 so forth i I think it is the little things becky so i I love that you mentioned that but it does bring up a point to me which is a lot of your i don't know what do we call them residents patients provide what what do you call Your, your clients okay yeah so a lot of your clients how do you kind of provide the services that you do and pair them with people when they aren't necessarily in permanent housing? Like, how do you track them down? How do you find them? What if they move from place A to place B?
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And actually that's why we love the Patient Overnight Parking Program. Um, And and that's why we have partnered. um, I mean, not only just for the fact of being able to track them down, but so that they can actually rest and recover so that we can really dig into some of their, you know, deeper goals and start working on those. Because when you're hungry and tired and stressed, and you don't even have like a door to lock or a safe place to sleep, you can't, it's hard to work on that. So we often give track phones, um, you know, just we'll put minutes on track phones so that folks can get a hold of us. And not only just us, but call their providers, call their family members, you know, reach out to folks that they haven't for a while. I mean, we don't need to be somebody's everything we want to help them really develop uh longer term relationships or or reconnect with folks um but yeah that is that is really why um you know we've partnered with a tiny home village and and provide uh, services through that and and tiny home slots for that so, so that is, we, you know, we'll be creative, we know where folks hang out. That is a big part of getting to know the community that you work in and really beating the street. When I say that, I mean, we spend a lot of time, well, prior to the pandemic, a lot of time in shelters, a lot of time in drop-in centers or day centers. So, you know, we know where folks hang out
2: like the two you mentioned, kind of the track phones. One of the partners we work with is Family First Foundation down in Oakland, um, which is run by Marshawn Lynch, right, who's really big in, in Seattle. I um, mean, that's one of the things he did is he created, uh, I think he calls it Beast Mobile. And that's what he does. He gives phones to people in need who then can keep in touch and, and can come back and, you know, get their haircut and their food and visit the community center. And you just think it's such a beautiful proposition because we as, as people know that we live off of our phones, right? Like if yeah, I lose yeah. my phone for five minutes, I am horrified. Can you imagine trying to function in this world without something that is your lifeline? So I love I love that you're doing that. Um, I was gonna ask you, I mean, we've talked to, I keep coming back to housing because it's such a big issue, but I know that you're not just dealing with housing issues. I know that there's a lot of, of other things that you guys are doing. So what are kind of some of the other services or other programs? I know you guys do a lot with behavioral health and mental health. Talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so I'll um, I'll talk a little bit more about our peer support programs. Um, and those that started out um, really in an effort to meet an Oregon state law. Um, I guess it's been about a year ago that um, the state of Oregon required every hospital that had a patient come in crisis uh, into the ER um, be provided with a follow-up call, and the law said that that call could be done by a behavioral health clinician, a physician, or a peer support specialist, and of course, as you've heard me talk, I mean, I'm a big advocate of that, and so um, we saw this as a way to add this really valuable component to our team. And, and so what the team does, we have 2.6 peer support specialists. As I mentioned, they all have their own lived experience. Um, and they provide follow-up calls for seven out of our eight organ hospitals. That eighth hospital actually has their own protocol um, to address these. They do about 475 to 500-ish calls a month um and so when they call folks after it's within a 48 hour time frame that they have to make their calls um but it's really to spend time with them on the phone to make sure they have all of their needs met that they know where to go if they have another crisis uh did do they have follow-up appointments with their providers? If they don't, how can we help them You know, make those appointments? Uh, are there any barriers to getting to those, transportation or anything else? Um, and often this really turns into some unique conversations and unique, as I mentioned, opportunities to really help in a deeper way. I mean, just as, as an example, um, so the peer team, if folks, at least within the Portland service area need a little bit more, maybe need some face-to-face work or, you know, maybe regular calls or regular meetings. They will actually meet them face-to-face and and spend more time. And so, so peer support really is just that it's just support. So it's taking them for coffee. It's going for a walk with them. It's, you know, we had a, a client that was working with one of our peers that. um, was so was self isolating so bad that was just triggering himself into this cycle of panicking and then going into the hospital you know it was just a cycle that couldn't stop and so our peer really spent a lot of time talking to this individual about ways to to pull themselves out of that how how can you start redeveloping those relationships in your life and actually from it came us utilizing one of our community contacts um to to get him a job and so he started working part-time and this program was specifically for folks that have behavioral health issues and that maybe need a little more support to um, fulfill their jobs things like that i mean they're so creative you know they even before the pandemic um know they would be really be creative with folks that didn't have transportation and were struggling with their addictions and you know I'll join an online meeting with you if that's what will help you know things like that I mean I, I can't tell you how many AA meetings I've gone with folks and that's really just the uniqueness of you know thinking outside of the box being innovative you know sort of using either our own experiences and making sure that everything is truly in a trauma-informed way. And, and this is why these outcomes are the way that they are.
2: Well, I now want to work for Bob just so you know. <laughs> I think it's such a beautiful proposition. I love it. You, you mentioned kind of the pandemic and that was one of the questions I was gonna ask you is how is COVID really, it's kind of a two-parter. How has it impacted the clients you have, both from a physical health and a mental health, but then how has it impacted the way that you provide services? Because we don't have a lot of physical, you have social distancing, talk to me, that's got to be a whole different world for you.
1: Well, it has been very interesting. Um, So we've still been doing outreach, of course, safely and to a certain degree during this whole time. Um, It has significantly impacted our clients. I mean, you know, I'm sure you've heard, you know, folks are even more stressed and more vulnerable, and I really worry about the long-term effects of this, Um, you know, and we just, we do what we can do. We, We continue just providing the support that we can. We've delivered, I've even dusted off my outreach skills and have been delivering food boxes and, you know, our school outreach program, they have been delivering crafts for families, you know, that just don't have the money to really help keep their kids entertained during this time. Um, So when the pandemic initially hit, um, we immediately, of course, started doing everything telephonically. And as things sort of leveled out, and we're starting to level out, and we were actually starting to see cases of COVID in our homeless population, um, we actually ended up were running a hotel that Providence was leasing some rooms for. Uh, what had happened was we didn't folks didn't really anticipate this happening, but some folks that were being screened for covid were uh, discharged to a motel that we normally contract with for a few days while they were awaiting their test results and uh, I think what happens is sometimes folks just like, you know, search homelessness within the internet of Providence and Bob comes up. So I was contacted quickly after they were discharged um, by one of our COVID uh, clinic doctors and said, I've got these these homeless folks that have tested positive and I need to find them. Can you help me? So, so we immediately realized that they were in these rooms and um, just our team is amazing. I mean, I just, I can't even, this team is amazing. So we immediately just wrapped around this services in this motel. We leased ten rooms. We were onsite twenty four seven. You know, of course, we had our PPE, and we were making sure folks were quarantining. We were providing them services. We dropped food at their door. Um, you know, just making sure it's the same thing that we do in everything else. It was just tailored towards you know these folks. Now we were there for about three weeks providing those on-site services. Um, and I, I still can't even believe it when I think about it. We literally stood up this program in like three days. And, and then once our counties um, got their own motels stood up, uh, because this was right in the beginning, um, then we tr- we transferred everybody to, to the uh, COVID um, county motels. So uh, yeah, we've just, we've been really creative. And we've also... Um, taken on more of the at-risk population during this time, uh, working with folks that are discharged to motels that aren't COVID positive, but that are at risk. And so we'll work with them for short interventions. But again, it's just tailoring to the community.
2: Well, you mentioned kind of your ability for your team to, to pull together. I have to say like Providence as a whole has amazed me from day one of patient one, right? We had patient one in the U S and just seeing all of the teams pull together and the drive through testing. And, you know, I mean, just everything has been amazing to me. And I, I just thank you and and your team for the great work that you do. Um, there's so many questions that I, and I'm running out of time because you've talked a little bit about like the societal impacts of COVID. And I know we've seen, there's more depression, there's more joblessness and homelessness, there's substance abuse, even, Domestic violence, which I assume then causes more displacement over time. So I can imagine it's going to increase, increase the, the need for your services. So I know we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk to you about the future, how people help, how they get involved, how we give more visibility. Because like you just talked about these these uh, hotels and take. I don't think anybody knew. I didn't know about that. And I researched your program. So how do we build the visibility? How do we get you some help?
0: Today's special episode is going to take a quick break. Does that scare you? Of your hand. You totally healed my mind. Lonely days I'm feeling like a fool for dreaming. As I wander down the avenue, so confused. Guess I'll try and force a smile. Pink lemonade sipping on a side. Let's get back to
2: the conversation. Becky, I was droning on and on, I think, right before the quick break, just about the societal impacts of COVID. And that has to be increasing the need of people in our communities. So how are you guys either growing or expanding? Or what can we, people, listeners, do to help you continue the great work that you're doing?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, You know, it, it is a little bit of a struggle because some of our programs are grant funded. And so there's always that, sort of worry that, um, you know, as the state of our nation really struggles with um, lots of cuts, um, you know, that's that's always a concern. Um, you know, and, and talking about it, just in forums like this, I talk about this program constantly, um, you know, I'm always presenting about the work that we do because I do believe in it so much. Um, I do a monthly newsletter, Uh called the Bob's blurb. (laughs) And I talk about, I mean, we I share success stories every month in that. I talk about the new work that we're doing, the new partnerships. I talk a lot about housing. And I know we have spent a lot of time talking about that because that is a huge issue, as you know. And it it is probably the single most uh just the most important social determinant of health is is having safe housing. Um, and you know, I would say that just awareness in general is probably the best thing. And, you know, for Providence, I mean, I feel so grateful for our Oregon Regional Behavioral Health uh, Department to just let, let me do this. I mean, this is, we have sort of really been very creative in each of the communities that we work in and to have this forum to talk about it and to continue this work and you know, I'm just really grateful. So I I think the single greatest thing is really just talking about it and spreading awareness and talking about our outcomes. Um, You know, how can we scale this to all of Providence? I mean, it's huge, it's huge.
2: Well, the need is huge, uh, but I'm guessing your program is not huge. Tell me how many people are there? How many, (laughs) what is Bob? How big are you?
1: Yeah. Well, including myself, we have 12 folks. So
2: Doing a lot of great work. That's impressive. Yeah, a lot of work. Yeah. Let's talk for a minute, though, about those people, because the work you're doing, which we call God's work here, um, is amazing and beautiful, but it has to be exhausting. It has to be emotionally draining, especially right now in COVID, where you're worried about your own health and your own family and that sort of thing. And, And I imagine also when you're going around some of your COVID patients, that does impact your ability to be around your family. How do you guys deal with that? How do you deal with kind of the, the burnout factor within this space specifically?
1: I'm so glad that you asked about that. It's it's funny. I, I speak a lot about Bob and not a lot of people ask about that. And that is huge. Um, and that is why I have specifically developed the program in certain ways, meaning I do not want folks to... Um, first of all, I don't make them have a set caseload, right? I don't say you have to work with this many clients per month, end of story, you know, I, I don't make it a numbers game, right? I make it more quality over quantity. However, I mean, it's not to say folks don't have, you know, three clients on their caseload. I mean, it's me spending the time with the team and saying like, Like, let's balance your caseload. Because our criteria for for our ER outreach program is a minimum, folks have to have, on top of a behavioral health condition, a minimum of 20 visits in 12 months or six in six weeks. Now, in different parts of Oregon where we work, of course, Portland, frequently that person gets 50, 100, 150 ED visits in a year. And those are very highly complex cases. And I don't want folks to burn out. So it's it's a matter of let's balance it out, right? How can we balance that out? And let's bring other folks in and and you know we we at each of our ER sites, we run a monthly multidisciplinary team meeting and we bring in basically experts in the ER, you know, psychiatrists, doctors, nurses. And so we really look at some of these complex cases and create care plans together and then and then bring them to the patient and the client and say, Okay, this is how, how this is how we think we can best treat you. What is your input, you know? Um, so, we do a lot of team events. So around Christmas time, we actually came up with this idea to do a Christmas sprinkle. I made about 150 bags of homemade Christmas cookies. Put them in these little sacks. We got donations from um, from one of our office buildings of socks, gloves. You know, we made hot chocolate. So, we just took wagons around our regional building and basically walked into camps, uh, walked into low income housing buildings, and just did stuff like that. We meet monthly and we also talk about this often. Every year, we do intention boards. So, you know, I do not want the team to ever forget how important the work they're doing is. And so, you know, we'll do um, those intention boards to help us remember why we're doing this work. What is important about what we're doing? Why do you guys want to do this work? Um, Things like that. I mean, really, just for me, I feel like, you know, now that I don't necessarily carry a caseload of my own, that my sole job is to help them do their jobs in a better way.
2: That always becomes tougher as you kind of move into management and administrative roles is that you do less of the work you love. And it's really about supporting the people who do that work. And and it can be challenging. You can feel disconnected. I, I kind of like that you were saying during this COVID time that you've actually been able to pick up a caseload. I, I imagine that that kind of does help a little bit in the long run.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, I love it. I was I loved being at the motel and just and delivering food boxes. And I do, I do actually a lot of case consults for our community. We get, as I mentioned, we get a lot of community referrals, um, especially the fire department, places like that. And, and I do a lot of consults. Um, And, and to be honest, you know, part of the requirements for the team and myself, I mean, we, I have them go to as many community meetings as they can. Uh, We also run a large community meeting every month. I run, a huge meeting of other outreach workers and social services and hospital folks and run a large listserv that we send out resources to the community. And so that really helps us stay connected.
2: Well, I don't, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I do think that a lot of people listening are really going to want to know how to help. And I think that that could be through donations. It could be through volunteering. I don't know what your programs look like, but even if it's just, you know, if you're helping people in need and maybe they're in need of clothing, I don't know what I'm sure everybody's thinking, how can I help? What are the best ways to do it?
1: Gosh, well, funding is a huge thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, um, I would say probably connecting with our local foundations. um, around funding, uh, opportunities, um, donations. We always accept donations. Uh, we you know, in fact, I have my whole garage full of stuff that we were helping all of our <laughs> motel clients with, you know, clothing. And I mean, folks, you know, track phones, uh, that's huge. Track phone minute cards, um, okay. you know, gift cards for for food. Uh, you know, we purchase a lot of tents and tarps and things like that. Um, I actually just was speaking to somebody the other day who wanted to get involved. And um, I mentioned the tiny home village that we are partnering with. Um, and, and they need help too. I mean, you know, we have our, uh, I've called them Bob bungalows. Uh, so I, I know it's funny. Um, we're actually just ready to house, we only have two of them and we're ready to house our second person in there. But, but the village, you know, they need donations too. I mean, they need, uh, you know, food, things like that. And I would say anytime you can support our community partners, you're supporting us too, because we could never do any of this without our community partners. Well, so
2: I, you know, you, you mentioned a little bit of donations. I'm going out on a limb here. Tell me if I'm wrong. If if we send people to the give.providencefoundations.org, will the money get to the Bob program or is there somebody, some other specific place?
1: So there actually is another specific place. Uh, you want to go to providencefoundations.org and slash BOB at the end. So if you click on that link, it will take you directly to a donation page for the Bob program and where that money will go. It will be put into a behavioral health fund specifically for use of the Bob program. And what we use our funds for really sort of depends on the patient need. But, you know, we've we've helped folks with anything from hygiene kits to just basic clothing and food if our community partners aren't available to even helping folks with a month's worth of rent. Um, I feel like with COVID uh, and all of the turmoil that that's causing in our communities, uh, I think that this is the best time to be asking for donations because our vulnerable patients and community is going to be even more vulnerable when this is all over. So anything folks can give is greatly, greatly appreciated. Well, let's talk a little bit about
2: how you gauge success, right? We know that the program is doing well. We know you're trying to grow it. But what does success look like in this space?
1: Yeah, um, well, I mean, obviously, we talk a lot about qualitative success. I showcase a lot of stories every month in the Bob's Blurb. And of course, talk about client success stories all of the time as often as I can. Um, But we do have a data analyst, thank goodness. Data is not my, numbers are not my strong point. He is amazing. Uh, So we track a lot of information for the Bob program. we look at 12 different social determinants of health on, on a scale for each person um, so that we can then look at how that correlates to their ED utilization. So as it stands, and to be honest, right before COVID hit, um, I know our data analyst was about to run our most current data. But um, but we've had about a steady 42% reduction in ED utilization for our clients across the board. So each site is a little different, of course, um, but how he looks at it is he runs data for 12 months prior to the Bob intervention and then in three month increments um, afterwards, hope getting up to a year. He's also run cost savings analysis, as I've, you know, told you, even just the project that we were involved in with the, you know, 446 saved hospital days. um, That's huge. Um, So I think that, you know, there are opportunities to look at different kinds of data, uh, especially as we look at keeping our hospital beds open. Right. Um, You know, I think that the way the Bob program has, specifically been run is we just sort of we meet the needs to that community and so we were just talking the other day about a lot of the pandemic work that we've been doing and you know perhaps there's a way to look at successes in a different way for some of that work
2: oh that's wonderful well i forgot we were supposed to take questions from other people i'm so selfish (laughs) Um, we had some questions coming in from social so i'm going to jump into those and we we may have to take more after the break but um <clears throat> Sandy Beaches at Twitter uh, says, My mother is homeless and lives out of her car. Would this program in Clackamas County be able to help her um, maybe find a place to park at night and be safe? So yeah. I guess maybe Clackamas County, one of the
1: locations or so Clackamas County is actually where we got our housing grant. Unfortunately, that grant is just ending uh soon. And We had a church apply for car camping in that area and we're not successful. Um, I wish I had an answer. I don't, unfortunately. I I really think that um, we could advocate for that. I would love in Clackamas County because Clackamas County does have one of the highest rates of homelessness with zero shelters. Uh, I would love, I know, I would love to, to see how Providence sites could could support something like that. I know at some of our larger hospitals, they do RV camping for patients and, you know, why not?
2: I imagine, Becky, that people have this question all day every day around the state. Like, what what's the advice you would give somebody who just has a family member in need? Where would you send them to start looking for resources? Because Bob obviously isn't gonna meet the needs of every single person
1: yeah yeah yeah. And I think that that's you know, if we can't work with somebody because either they don't meet our specific criteria or whatever the reason, that's that's one of the main reasons why we're so connected in the community. I mean, two one one's a great resource, you know, and that's pretty universal. Um, but that's also why we do consults. You know, we get called a lot of the time, like I mentioned, just for consults, even if we can't pick up a case because we are so well connected and we do run that big meeting for resources and to learn constantly. It's constantly ever-changing in every community, especially now.
2: Every day, right?
1: Ladies,
0: we need to take one final break. We'll be right back on the Give Back with more about the Bob Program. Work when it hurts, when you pick yourself up, you get kicked to the dirt You're Trying
1: to make it
0: work, man, these times are hard But we're gonna stop by Drinking our cheap bottles of wine Sit talking up all night Doing things we haven't for a while A while, yeah we're smiling but we're close to tears Even after all these years, we're just now Thanks for joining us today on the Give Back with Mary Ranoff and Becky Wilkinson talking about the Better Outcomes Through Bridges program, also known as Bob. Right before the break, we started taking questions from
2: social. We were talking a little bit about how to access services. Um one of the questions we got from Brandy on Facebook is: My brother has problems with addiction and he gets himself into trouble a lot. He wants to turn his life around but every time he thinks he's gonna get a break something happens and he loses everything again and he returns to addiction is this something that you guys would be able to help
1: with mm-hmm. yeah actually that's uh quite a bit of our clientele right there um you know folks are, especially now folks are really really struggling uh with addiction and relapse and and that's where our peer support specialists come in you know, offering their own lived experience with addiction and and just providing that support. You know, as I mentioned, attending AA meetings or joining an online AA or NA meeting with somebody, um, taking walks with folks, you know, things, just being really creative to provide that support. And then, you know, we're not going to force somebody to do anything, but often what naturally happens is when folks feel supported and they feel safe, then they wanna start making changes.
2: Have you had any um, clients in this program that have gone on to kind of see success and then have either come back to try to help you or referred other people into the program? How does that look?
1: Yes, actually, that is funny. I mean, I've had a lot of my own clients um, refer folks. Um, And that's where I always wanna have that open door policy. I mean, again, we can't work with everyone. We're 12 people. Uh, in limited you know locations um but if we can just provide a consult and use some of our connections to to help refer in different places um but yeah we've had so many clients come back and You know, to be honest, there's always a little bit of an open door. I know our our team uh, definitely periodically reaches out to folks that were previously on their caseload. In fact, I was just talking the other day from a client of mine that I worked with when I first started with Providence, um, struggling with her own addiction issues, living in a really um, challenging environment. And she was one of the folks that I had gone to several um, AA meetings with. And then when I started hiring folks onto the Bob team, um, sort of handed her case off to the new Bob outreach worker. And, you know, she's been sober for a year and a half, two years, and is in a completely different living environment. Um, Just reached out, actually to sort of think as, I mean, I've got a ton of letters from even you. just our peer support program, which is not that old, just saying, you know, uh, I got a call from you guys and, and they'll they'll send it to me. They'll say, I'm gonna send this to your boss, you know, just saying I, I, I was at my lowest point and got a call from somebody at Providence saying, how can I help you? And uh, this one particular case that comes to mind, you know, he said, he was at his lowest point and just felt like for the first time somebody was actually listening to him. And once he sort of got all of that off of his chest and was able to meet this person in the community and then work towards sobriety and long-term housing, I mean, he felt like, you know, I lost relationship with my children, lost relationships in my life. And I, for the first time felt helpful, hopeful, you know, yeah, it's just constantly hearing from folks.
2: It's it's nice to hear from kind of the success stories and, and to know that people are able to kind of move out of this moment in time for them, which may have been a long moment in time, but was just yeah. a moment in time. But how how are people receptive to your services? Because I imagine not everybody wants help or not everybody that gets to you is ready for it at that moment so talk to me a little bit about how like if you get a referral or you get somebody are are they pretty receptive to what you're you're offering
1: yeah i mean for the most part i would say yes um even in my experience even if we meet folks you know, cause a lot of times that the outreach team that's in, that are in the ERs um, really try to meet folks while they're in the hospital. I mean, that seems to be the gold moment to at least start developing that relationship. And I've always said, and I know a lot of the teams say to folks, you know, I'm here. If you, you know, aren't ready right now or don't feel like you need any help right now, here's my card. And inevitably I would say ninety percent of those people always end up calling back. Yeah, it's very, very rare for folks to um, to decline our services. And even if they do, they'll come around at some point.
2: Well, it's, it's interesting, Becky, you and I got connected through Dr. Henderson, who we just absolutely love him yeah. on the show. I mean, I just love in general. But it was interesting. The reason you and I got connected is because I said to her, I have this program that wants to help homeless people find their families and be reconnected. Um, and she said, oh, do I have the person for you, right? So tell me a little bit about about that, because I assume that a lot of the people that you work with really are on their own and maybe just disconnected from family or lost touch or, like I said, feel like they might be a burden. How do you make that kind of reconnection? And is that something that really is kind of one of your key success goals for people?
1: Yeah, if that's something that they want, usually that conversation honestly occurs over time. It's not necessarily the first thing that comes you know, from folks. Um, but yes, I, I did talk to that organization, um, just about the amazing work that they do in connecting homeless folks to their families and loved ones. But, but it has been something in the past that we've done on our own. <clears throat> Excuse me, I would say that, you know, it really just depends on the situation. We've had folks want help getting back home, um, you know, and so then we've had to connect, you know, we don't want to just, help somebody get somewhere with no plan. Uh you know so then there's that digging around, finding family, finding, you know, old friends, making sure that this is something that's going to be sustainable and that it's a good idea. Um but I would say probably percentage-wise in all of our cases, probably, you know, 30% of the time that we're helping folks find find uh, others.
2: It's just the work you do is so amazing. I'm just so grateful. Is there is there anything you would want people to know or a takeaway? If I'm listening to this program, what's the one thing that I should walk away from it and say, oh, that was completely worth listening to. I can't I can't wait to share this with other people.
1: Well, I think that you sort of hit it when you talked a little bit about the small team. I still often cannot believe the huge impact that has been made in these communities with the short time that we have been around and with the small team. Um, our team is amazing. I might be biased, (laughs) but I think that really taking the time to learn that everyone has got their own story. I think that our, you know, our vulnerable population, which most often includes homelessness, um, you know, they get judged pretty quickly, you know, sleeping on the side of the road and, you know, everyone's got a story. Everyone's got an amazing story. If folks would just listen. And I think it's, it's just not fair to judge folks at first glance and, and to really learn about the successes and see that, that people do want better for themselves. They just need support. And it's really honestly all about relationship building.
2: I think, you know, I, I've, I said, you know, a lot of people who get into this work have lived experience and I actually have people in my family who, you know, chose to be homeless. And I kept thinking, I don't understand. And I was, I kept judging them for that decision and not offering to help them or not offering to figure out why they made that decision, or even just to figure out how to help them find services. Like, okay, so you don't want to be involved with the family. How can we still help you? And I do think what you've said is really important. So as, as a person listening who maybe sees someone on the street and instantly judges them, what can we do? Like, what should we understand about about what we're seeing that says okay stop making the judgment and figure out how you can be part of the solution
1: yeah i i would look at whatever community you're living in and see if if you know volunteering is your thing see if you can volunteer raise awareness i mean if you're comfortable not everybody's comfortable but You know, look somebody in the eye, say hi, you know, take the time to listen. How are you? And truly mean it, honestly, Um, you know, and and homelessness is, uh, you know, it's a huger issue than just small communities. I mean, even just in our small uh, housing, you know, work, just coming into different coding and all those types of things. I think advocating, writing to your cities and communities, learning about what the constraints are in your communities and advocating for them can be the biggest impact you
2: can make. Well, Becky, I really want to thank you for joining us today. And I want to thank everyone for listening and sending in their questions. Uh, We look forward to future topics with more experts from Providence. Make sure to follow us on social media at Providence on Twitter and under Providence Health System on Instagram and Facebook. To learn more about our mission programs and services, visit future.psjhealth.org. And don't forget to visit our providence.org and look for the Bob program and see how you can be a part of the future success. Thank you all for listening.
0: Thank you, Mary, for guest hosting and also to Becky for joining us today and sharing your insights. If you're looking for more information about Providence work to improve our community's health, please go to providence.org. If you'd like to make a donation to the work that the Bob program does, you can visit us at providencefoundations.org. And for more information about Providence's work to improve our community's health, please go to providence.org. Wishing you all good health.